This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The statistics keep telling us that the housing market is doing better than everybody expected. And yet we still have some analysts out there who are warning about prices and problems. Now, one of those analysts is Dane Idle from Idle Insights, and he joins us now to talk about that. Good morning, Dane. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me back. Well, nice to have you here. What you're saying, though, sounds a little bit different from what we're hearing from other people about the housing market. Why do you think that there could be a price problem? Sure. Well, there, there, there's a number of factors why we could have a, a, a pricing challenge coming up in our near future. First of all, in the detached market, the average sale price for August was $1,638,000. Now, that represents the 20th data point inside of a $60,000 band over the last 58 data points. So basically, that signals that that middle threshold of this current market cycle is, is extremely worn out. Uh, the higher end of the market had been filled out during 2017 and parts of 2018. And, and that lower threshold of the market really hasn't been completely filled out. And that, of course, needs to transpire before this market can go higher on its own volition. Okay, so you're saying that's going to be holding us back. Absolutely. Uh, not only that, but the inventory is continually growing. Um, the detached market, what is interesting for us and, and a lot of other analysts, the, the inventory numbers are extremely low. So our current inventory for the detached market, which is right around 4,800 active listings, is below the December of 2018 number, total inventory. So with such low inventory, if there truly was a demand for this housing market, you would see prices go up just simply because of the supply-demand factors. But we're not seeing that. We're seeing prices hover around that middle threshold. There's been historic government stimulus pumped into this market um, property housing uh, ho- houses that are coming to the market are really not testing the market to see what you know prices you can get. These are these need based sales that we we did say would be coming to the market, and now it's beginning to transpire. Um, we're seeing the mortgage delinquencies, the mortgage in arrears continue to tick up, and that's really a negative indicator for the market going forward. Okay, so is it possible though that what we have right now is people kind of buying because they had been putting it off for perhaps a year or two? And they they were thinking about doing it, and now they just figured time to do it. Yes, that's that that is one of the factors of a purchasing mentality right now. Um, prices are both in the detached and the condo market are down ten percent in the detached and eight percent in the condo. So prices have been lower over the last year or so, over compared to where we were a year ago. But in, uh, interest rates are low, and that inventory number for the detached market is low. So there has been a little bit of a panic that you might have a fear of missing out. We really see that uh, uh, mental gymnastics leaving this market, and it's, it's starting to be a fear of overpaying for a depreciating asset. Uh, the condo inventory has just hit uh, the, the, the highest that it's been in the last few years. We're just over 6,000 active inventory. So what that signals for the condo market is there really is no investment purchasing going on. To your point, there is need-based purchasing. So, of course, people have to live somewhere. 
Um, so, so, but there isn't enough of that demand to mitigate this need to sell or, or a want to get out of this upcoming right. turbulent market. But you're saying then the market is normally and prices are normally driven by investment based, you know, purchasing. Is it not possible though that just you know the regular type of market, people buying because they need to, people moving here, just people just buying because they're going to live there? Can that not sustain the market? That would sustain the market if we didn't come from such highs that we were at during 2017. So when prices were at 1.830 average sale price compared to where they are now, down $200,000, it really does send a panic to purchasers um, that, that, that were involved during those multiple offers. Uh, we're seeing lots of properties that were purchased during 2016 and ultimately listed during 2018 trying to make you know pie in the sky, win- winning the lottery type money. They're actually coming back to the market and, and selling for $500,000 less than they were listed for in 2018. And, of course, you see the higher-end scaling selling for you know a million and a half less than their list price from a couple of years ago. But if that's where the market settles, if that's what people are willing to pay and it's just us, not investment, going on, that's okay, right. isn't it? Um, I, I could agree to that if the sales numbers weren't really so abysmal. Now, yes, August was much better than where we have been in the previous yeah. months. But that's coming from that anemic sales from sub 400 in April. So when you do have a, an anomaly that's low, you can expect to see a kind of a rapid snap back to, to an alternative high. And then the market will eventually settle. These, these sale prices over the last few years, count, count, uh, contrary to what the, the board would like you to believe, really haven't been that great um, since 2017. Sales numbers have been falling off quite rapidly with inventory going up in some pockets of the market. Now, again, to your point, we are in this uh, the seasonal hot market, right? So from April till August is usually when the most sales do occur. We're well below our five-year averages for both the detached and the condo market numbers. And the inventory, like I say, is for the detached, it's the highest in the past 10 months. Nobody really wants to put their property on the market. And to your point, not everybody really is looking to purchase. These are just need-based purchases with the need-based selling uh, uh, specter of the market continuing to grow. Okay. All right. Well, Dane, thanks very much for the insights. No problem, Sammy. Look forward to the next time. That is Dane Idol, the founder of Idol Insights, a real estate analyst company. Uh, he believes that detached home prices are going to actually go down. And you know what? That would also be welcome for some people, not necessarily for people who own their homes and really want that equity to go up. Uh, but he's essentially saying the market is in more of a flux than the stats have kind of led us to believe at this point. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, most of UBC's 60,000 students are not going to be returning to in-class learning today. So for post-secondary institutions, a different picture than what the K-12 system is going to be dealing with this week. But we wanted to know, how is BC's largest university adapting to these COVID-19 challenges. So joining us now for more on that is Matthew Ramsey, spokesperson for UBC. Matthew, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Simi. So what is life going to look like for students this week? Oh, it's going to look very different, as you can imagine. Um, we have about 44% of our student residents returning to campus to live in residence. Um, to give you a sense of the shift to uh, online classes, over the summer, um, a group of more than 100 faculty and staff worked together to move about 3,000 courses typically taught in classrooms to an online setting. There are some courses that will remain in person, but it's quite few, and we are primarily online for this fall, and uh, we recently announced that uh, we'll be adopting a similar model for uh, the first term of next year as well. 
Oh, so you're doing this for the entire year, no matter what the situation is? Yeah, we felt it was a prudent approach to take um, to allow our students to plan and for our faculty to plan. So the decision was made to uh, make the uh, new term also online primarily. Okay, when you say primarily, which classes won't be online? Well, there are a number of labs and um, some courses that are impossible to adapt to online. So you can think of chemistry, um, some medical uh, courses as well that will be in person. Okay, so the sciences mainly, because we've been hearing from that from KPU as well. That's pretty challenging. But what about students in dorms? You've got quite a, a lively residential life there up at UBC as well. Yeah, UBC has about 13,000 um, student residence beds, and uh, it is the largest uh, single housing provider for students in Canada, and I think in North America at this point. Uh, we're anticipating about 44% of those beds will be filled, and that's primarily filled by uh, returning students, uh, families, um, not as many first years as in previous years. Uh, housing folks up at the university have made every effort to put aside single rooms for those students who will be living in residence and some of the buildings that are typically occupied by students right now uh, are vacant. Right. But, you know, we know that first year university can be so challenging making that transition for students there. You've got a lot of first year students. How are you helping them make this transition? Right. So, well, that's been sort of the key point of the development of the online offerings um, through the summer. And that's to give our students uh, who are taking online courses a creative and flexible approach and one that also uh, um, understands the, that uh, a big part of the university experience is making connection with, with peers um, and uh, with their profs. Um, to do that, there are a number of new platforms that will enable our students to speak with each other, speak with their profs. Um, when we talk about creativity and flexibility, we're talking about courses being offered uh, synchronously, asynchronously, or in pre-recorded, so uh, students in different time zones can access them at their convenience. If they happen to have a job, they can continue with that employment, or if they just need to help out around the house, stop their mom and dad from losing their minds, they can do that too. Um, and uh, also, the when you think about final assessments, um, the, the time when two or 300 students might file into a lecture hall and take an exam all together, well, those, those, those classroom spaces and our ability to do that is, 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 not, is not around at this point. So a lot of uh, students may find that instead of a final exam, they'll be asked to do a final project. Right. Well, that's going to change, obviously, how things get you know, paid for as well. Has there been a challenge in letting students know that there's still going to be full tuition paid here? Yeah, well, so since the beginning of the, uh, uh, the shift to online, we, ha we are aware that, that, that students have been, um, some students have been uh, signing petitions asking the university to reduce tuition. Mm -hmm. um, what I can tell you is that uh, the university is, is not reducing tuition for the fall term. Uh, that is because tuition pays for everything that the students need. It pays for their financial supports. We're giving more than $100 million in emergency bursaries this this year. It pays for their faculty and it pays for staff. And at the end of the day, the uh, students who are uh, lucky enough to get into a university like UBC are graduating with a degree, whether right. they start their degree online or finish online, they're graduating with a degree from one of the best universities in the world and that will open doors for them. All right, Matthew, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Simi. Matthew Ramsey, spokesperson for UBC. 
This is Mornings with Simi. We're all talking about back to school this week because it is such a huge undertaking, one that is being undertaken all over the world, really, within the last couple of weeks and looking forward to the next couple of weeks, too. And there have been mixed results from that. We just heard in the news how even in provinces like Ontario and Quebec, they are seeing some positive cases in some schools, as many as 46 schools in Quebec and about half a dozen right now in Ontario. What about other countries? How are they doing this? Well, Switzerland and Denmark, places like that, where the gold standard for kind of reopening as time went by, They had managed to keep things under control, seemed like they had things figured out. But let's see how the back-to-school journey has been going in Denmark. Joining us now is Shane Woodford, freelance journalist there, former reporter right here at CKNW. Hi, Shane. Hi, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. How are things in Denmark? Things looked so good there the last time we talked to you. Yeah, they were doing really well with the back-to-school Uh, until about a week ago. And uh, as we're talking right now, we've had infections in five different schools, uh, including, as of last night, uh, three in my son's school here in Faubourg. Thankfully, a different grade in a a different building. Uh, But it certainly seems to be hitting close to home. And the most worrying case uh, that I've heard about so far, Simi, in one of the other four schools uh, was near Aarhus, where a young grade two student tested positive Uh, The age, of course, is concerning. The other concerning thing there is uh, the young student had only been tested because they had come in contact with somebody else who had COVID. They had no symptoms whatsoever and came up with a positive test. So how, what does that mean for the overall number of cases in Denmark? I've been keeping track of your Twitter feed here and it does look like, just like we're seeing here in BC, numbers back on the rise. Yeah, we've uh, we've got a major outbreak on our hands. Uh, We're about two or so weeks removed. Uh, from an outbreak that was taking place in the outskirts of Copenhagen and in Denmark's second most populous city in Aarhus. Uh, That was stamped down, and we actually had health officials here saying, okay, we're seeing positive testing numbers, we're seeing cases that are on the downward trend. Uh, Two weeks later, Denmark is taking in daily infection case numbers that we have not seen since the beginning of April. 243 cases today, 230 yesterday, over 1,000 cases in the last week, including 500 over the weekend. So we are in, as the health minister called it yesterday, a worrying situation. How did this happen? What prompted all this? Yeah, um, the big finger is being pointed, Simi, at young people. Uh, Across the country, infection is spreading most rapidly in late teens to early 20s in Copenhagen specifically the age group there is 20 to 29. Hmm. Uh, There is some talk about how this has sort of coincided with back to school um, especially in Copenhagen which has a lot more concentrated college and university situation Uh, and the kids have gone back to school they've renewed acquaintances they've reestablished social networks Um, they're having private parties, and that is how the COVID virus is spreading to uh, a large degree here in Denmark. So there's now a concentrated effort. Uh, They've called for schools to cancel all social activities. Uh, I know in Copenhagen and nationally, there's going to be sort of a reinvestment on a communication strategy aimed at young people and in areas where young people are known to congregate. That sounds very similar, right, to what we are seeing, not just Mm. here in BC, but also right across the United States. It almost sounds like it's an age thing and has nothing to do with countries and different cultures. Yeah, I mean, kids feel invulnerable at that age, right? And and to be fair, I mean, here in Denmark, 
there's a real sense of this country has handled the virus really well. For a really long time, our numbers were really low. Uh, and there was a general feeling, you know, the sun was out, the summer arrived, the numbers were down, uh, people began to staycation the crap out of this country, uh, people were yeah. everywhere. And there was a real sense, and you and I have talked about this in the past, um, there's a real sense of complacency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was some of the social distancing habits kind of began to fall apart. Uh, you know, there were stores were just letting people in. And so now there's a call here in Denmark to really refocus and lock down and some of the coronavirus basics are calling them. So they're calling for retail stores and grocery stores to once again limit the amount of people that go inside for people to really concentrate on social distancing. There's hints here, Simi, that they may introduce mask mandatory mask use inside of grocery and retail stores if this thing gets any worse. But essentially they're saying, listen, we have been complacent for too long. It is time to get back to the basics. All right. We're hearing that everywhere, too. Uh, thanks very much, Shane. Appreciate it, as always. Let me stay safe. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. That's Shane Woodford, our freelancer in Denmark, and, of course, former CKNW reporter, uh, talking about how Denmark has made the return to school. They are also seeing a rise in cases, not just because of the back-to-school situation, but also, as you heard Shane say, that they've got a number of new cases in those younger demographics, age 20 to 29, private parties happening, people socializing too much and forgetting that we still need to be very careful here. So similar, right, to what we've heard about happening here in BC. And don't forget, we have our numbers coming out this afternoon. It'll be a four-day total. So expect it to be, unfortunately, on the high side, I would imagine, uh, that coming up this afternoon at 3 o'clock, and we'll have it for you, of course. This is Mornings with Simi. I love stories like this next one that we're going to talk about because it helps us to learn something about the communities and the province that we live in. And it's just a neat little bit of knowledge that we're going to carry with us today. This one is about a rare discovery in the limestone caves near the town of Tassis on Vancouver Island. Martin Davis is with us now, the mayor of Tassis, to tell us more about it. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. First of all, tell me about the limestone caves. Are these a, Is this a popular place? Um, well, you do get limestone around BC on Vancouver Island. It only makes up about five, uh, four or five percent of the land surface. And uh, limestone, you get caves in it, sinking streams, uh, sinkholes. It's a really interesting ecosystem. It grows extra big trees because of the mineralization of the rock, and uh, you, you find rare species within it. And tell me what it is that was recently found in some of those caves. Um, well, it wasn't recently. This this species was first described in 1974 by one of my caver friends, Pat Shaw, and uh, we call it the Quatsino Cave Amphipod. It's a little shrimp-like creature that lives in the streams and caves, and it's only found in caves on Vancouver Island and up into the Alaska Panhandle, and it's very small. It's like five to seven millimeters long, and it lives within the streams, and uh, we think that it's sort of a relic population from uh, living under the glaciers, because it's uh, it's, it's just found up the coast here. It's, it's uh, only found in about, oh, maybe a dozen sites so far. Really? So it is fairly, fairly unusual. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's related to other species that people might know on the surface. There's one called gamorous. They're, they're side swimmers or scuds that you see them in ponds. But but this one is particularly endemic to caves. It's only been found there. So Right. Yeah. But this one is pretty significant now because now that we know those are there and we can document that those are there, what does that mean for being able to protect what's above the caves? Um, well, uh, it's been identified as a species at risk in uh, BC, so the government has taken an interest in protecting that and, and other endangered species. Um, I'd also mention that there's bats that use these caves. There's several species and they're, they're hibernation sites. So the caves in particular have, have a lot of significance. So in this area, we've been fighting for several years to uh, have this area protected. And uh, that finally went through this spring. We managed to get a, a 512 hectare reserve set up. It's called a wildlife habitat area to protect uh, the old growth and the caves underneath, the bats, and uh, the, the species, which I would call Stygiobromus quatsinensis. Okay, well, I can't say that. So why don't we just say these little I amphipods? Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying this was the, these little amphipods were the final piece in being able to say, listen, we need to have this area protected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the area has already been somewhat compromised. Back in the 70s and 80s, parts of it were logged, and there was a lot of damage that happened because of that. Because when they log over these, these cave areas, entrances get filled in, uh, soils can be eroded uh, into the caves, which, which harms the ecosystem and changes the balance of things, and, and you can lose these species. So, uh, yeah, that's why we were uh, fighting to protect this area in particular. Okay, so now it has officially been protected? Yeah, yeah. We, we spent years in negotiation with Western Forest Products, who holds the tree farm license over the area, and we've also involved the local First Nation, the Molochot Mushalot, and been working closely with the Environment Ministry on this. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm happy to... Uh, thank all of those and their efforts towards this. I, I know it was a, a bit of a hit for Western, you know, no logging company wants to give up uh, prime old growth, but, but as I described it, this is a rare ecosystem and as we're running out of old growth on the coast, we really need to look at protecting those key areas. So now, Martin, now I have to ask you, what does this mean for tourism? Can we come and see all this? Uh, well, I wouldn't say this particular area. It's a very rugged area. The caves there are, are, are nasty. They're quite dangerous. There, there are other great caves that people can see on Vancouver Island. You know, I'd recommend Horn Lake and uh, Upana Caves is a self-touring cave uh, between Gold River and Tassus. And there's a couple of others. And uh, other than that, if people are really serious about getting into caving, they need to contact uh, our provincial federation, the BC Speleological Federation, because uh, Caves are risky to people. Um, some of them have flood hazards and rockfall hazards and all that. So I, I, I don't really encourage people to get into wild caving without having some experience with people that have already done that before. All right. Good advice there, Martin. Thank you. Okay. That is Martin okay. Davis, the mayor of Tassas, talking about the a new protected area they're going to have there thanks to this little tiny amphipod that was finally documented, put into place, and now it's going to mean a, a very different situation. No more old growth like logging that will be going on there and all because of the species that they're going to be protecting. It's kind of cool. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Of course, traffic, as we've been hearing, is very busy out there this morning. What you might expect, of course, the day after Labor Day, people getting back to work, and a lot of teachers and everybody heading back to school today as well. Not students yet, that's another couple of days. But traffic also a pretty big topic over the weekend. There was that big crash on Saturday, just north of Squamish, that involved a supercar, sent two children to hospital, closed the Sea to Sky Highway for hours and hours, and then... Last night, or late yesterday afternoon, another crash that closed the Sea to Sky Highway for hours. It was something like three hours, and it just is becoming untenable. We want to talk more about what is happening there. So joining us now is Karen Elliott, the mayor of the District of Squamish. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. There must be a lot of frustration with residents in Squamish the past uh, week or so. Well, I think probably the frustration extends well beyond our borders. Um, There's a lot more people that are on the highway trying to get into the outdoors and enjoy the weekend. And, um, you know, so I think both these accidents created a lot of frustration all around. Would you say it's kind of uh, more of a problem recently than it has been? I guess we kind of got used to having roads that were a bit quieter, didn't we? The highway was certainly quieter through the spring. And once uh, the province moved us into phase three, as expected. You know, we have a lot of beautiful space up here where people can find distance from each other. So every weekend has been incredibly busy on the highway and uh, uh, people have to use their common sense. This isn't a straight highway. This is a mountain highway and people forget that. Um, and and often, you know, speed is a factor. Yeah. What kind of behavior do you see and do your residency there? Um. You know, just a general lack of of attention to the speed limits. And um, I think also uh, for those who aren't familiar with the road, it is a there's beautiful scenery along the road. So uh, uh, it's easy to get distracted by the views. Uh, and just the sheer volume right now um, can lead to impatience uh, and, and people just trying to, you know, get a few cars ahead at every passing lane and, and that sort of thing instead right. of just enjoying the ride. Are, are there ways of fixing this, do you think? I know this has been a problem for years and years, right? We've always talked about the Sea Sky Highway, but are there things that you think perhaps could be done to improve the situation? Well, I think a lot's been done. I mean, I remember the highway before it was upgraded for the Olympics, and it was, it was a pretty treacherous road back then. Um, so I think a lot's been done to improve the highway's safety. Uh, we do have enforcement out, thank goodness, because they caught the Ferrari driver doing a stupid speed around Porto Cove um, okay. on Saturday. And, uh, um, you know, it comes down to, to people just respecting the rules of the road. I mean, sure, we can put more enforcement in, um, but we can't be everywhere at all times. And we really you know, we rely a lot on people just paying attention to the road and, and obeying the law. Do we need to get tougher, do you think, then? Like the, you mentioned the Ferrari driver there in Porto Code going something like 190 kilometers an hour, uh, which is just crazy when you think about it. Do we need to get tougher to send more of a message, do you think? Well, I know this government increased fines um, 
I'm not sure that. I think the ticket was around $400 for that excessive speed. It probably could be higher if you're driving a Ferrari and doing that kind of ridiculous speed and putting other people's lives at risk. Um, I think it could be higher. Um, you know, I and, and also just having these kinds of road rallies on our highway. Uh, is that a good idea on crowded weekends um, in big muscle cars? I'm not sure. Yeah, does that, it almost seems like a bit of a recipe for a disaster when you've got that many people traveling what is already a kind of a notorious highway, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the whole idea of that rally is that people hold off until they get to the airport in Pemberton, and then they can go as fast as they want uh, up and down the runway. Um, but, you know, for those who haven't learned delayed gratification, it's really easy to put your foot down on the gas pedal uh, while you're still on the highway. And, and I just, I find it shocking. And, and you know, they've caused a lot of distress uh, for a family here and some young children, mm-hmm. um, all because they couldn't wait. But, you know, again, is that the best use of our public infrastructure? Maybe that should just be reserved for, for racetracks and not highways. Now, what would your message be then, Mayor Elliott, to people who do use that Sea to Sky Highway or who are going to be heading out there? I just really am asking people to use their common sense. We have a lot of people exploring our trails and backcountry right now. Our search and rescue teams, our first responders have been very busy on the weekends responding to events um, having to do with recreating tourists. We, we just don't need the added pressure on the highway. And I'm hoping that now that, that school will be back in and people are, are back at work and back into a regular routine, we'll see the numbers on the highway drop again. But it is a mountain highway. It's a dangerous highway. People have to obey the posted speed limit. And you'll get to your destination. It's a beautiful view. Just enjoy it. There's, there's no point racing up our highway. And, and that goes for the groups of motorcyclists, too, that that try and uh, race up the highway on the weekends as well. It's just not worth it. And I've seen some pretty scary behavior all around and people just need to take it easy. We just don't need that added stress on our, our healthcare workers on our first responders right now. I would agree. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That is Karen Elliott, mayor of the district of Squamish talking about the problems on the sea to sky highway that we have seen increase in the last, well, just the last four or five days, right? Another accident closing the highway yesterday, the big one that closed the highway for 10 hours on the weekend. And, you know, hearing about the Ferrari and all that, I was really thinking about this yesterday and I thought, obviously we're not, we're not strict enough or we're not sending enough of a message. You heard the mayor there say as well that, yeah, maybe we do need to think about making it harsher. What is a good or a decent, do you think, penalty for someone caught doing something as stupid as that and perhaps causing a crash in a situation like the Sea to Sky Highway? Uh, what would send a message, do you think? How do you punish speeders who cause these kinds of problems? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, in two days, students all over this province from kindergarten to grade 12 will start another school year. Today, though, that is the case for thousands of teachers who are going to be there to help them through all of that. So you can imagine some stress, some anxiety going on out there today. We thought, let's check in, find out how that's going. So joining us now is Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Thank you for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. I'm sure you've had a chance to speak to a lot of teachers out there. How are the ones that you've spoken to feeling today? Well, you know, as you stated, there's a lot of apprehension out there, and that's perfectly understandable. And so my hope is that these concerns won't be 
diminished <laughs> when they're discussed today at school, but rather taken uh, in the, uh, you know, as seriously as they should be. Um, you know, for many uh, teachers, they haven't actually been able to be in schools before because they were shut down. And so while some teachers were able to be in a little bit early, others weren't. And so for some, they're looking at classrooms and the school set up for the first time. And so I'm sure we'll be hearing at the end of the day um, the adequacy of, uh, of those uh, preparations. And so these two days that teachers have this bit of a head start, what is expected to go on during this time? So there's really important health and safety orientation training that needs to occur. Um, and so, you know, this is the opportunity for districts to let teachers know exactly all the plans that have been put in place. Some of them have been done in conjunction with health and safety committees, which is great. Um, and so, you know, that training is going to happen. It's really important that it is thorough because teachers are then going to be the ones training students, obviously. Uh, and so it's also a really important time that teachers' questions get answered um, and concerns get aired. Um, and I'm really hoping that a lot of problem solving is happening over the next couple of days so everyone feels better on Thursday. Um, I know that there'll be situations, however, where you know, it's difficult. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, we'll be doing our best to support uh, local teacher unions as well. I understand that one of the big questions and concerns that I kept hearing about, too, is what do we do if there is a positive case in a classroom? Now, do you have any more clarity on that? Well, you know, I, I heard uh, the minister say that uh, it'll be handed over to the health authority to do the investigation, and, and that's, you know, und- undoubtedly appropriate. Um, but, you know, what we understand is it will really depend on the investigation as to what exactly happens. And so there isn't um, a clear, you know, explanation about what exactly will happen. And so, and I guess, you know, there's some credence to that given um, you don't know, you know, the exposure levels or anything like that until you do that investigation. So, you know, we'll have to um, trust health authorities on that, and and certainly we do, obviously. Um, But, you know, we're more concerned about the preventative measures that are lacking in classrooms. And so a good example of that is for TTOCs who are supposed to be socially distancing or physically distancing from their class um, because they won't be a part of any particular cohort. And we've seen some pictures on social media of some of the classrooms, especially the ones with 26 to 28 desks that cannot be separated even by a meter. Um, and so, you know, there are some specific concerns about some um, teachers that, you know, need to be answered district by district. Yeah, that, I guess that's a good point then about substitute teachers. How do we deal with that problem? Well, we've suggested some things, including barriers being constructed, um, because obviously physical distancing in classrooms like that isn't possible. And that's an area, physical barriers are an area where, you know, I don't doubt we'll have to really um, be advocating for. There seems to be a reluctance, at least in some districts, to put these barriers up, even though we're seeing them really commonly in uh, workplaces and office buildings and, um, you know, the services that we, we get. Um, and so the, there's going to have to be some special considerations for those itinerant teachers that go from cohort to cohort and TTOCs that do as well. Um, because, you know, as, as we've seen, it, it's not possible in an intermediate classroom to physically distance even for the teacher to be able to do that. So, you know, mask wearing, I don't doubt 
uh, will happen on behalf of, uh, of teachers, and we have face shields as well. We know there aren't enough face shields for all teachers and support staff across the province, and so we'll be expecting districts to purchase them as necessary. Are you concerned when you hear, Terry, that in other provinces like Ontario and Quebec that you know they've just reopened and they're already getting some cases? It is really concerning, <laughs> and this is exactly why uh, we're pushing for those preventative measures to be put in place. And, you know, it's it's really unfortunate now that government has handed over the complete responsibility for all of the decision-making now to districts. Um, what happens in those situations is inequity gets set up. And so the remote um, learning option is a great example of that, where, you know, the, the province has uh, paved the way for districts to be able to offer a remote option, but then they've instructed districts to deal with parents on a case-by-case basis, which is the absolute antithesis of equity. And, and that's really unfortunate because we all know families that are well able to advocate for themselves and families that aren't. And in a public education system, it should not come down to who's the best advocate for their own children. There should be a certain level of equity across the entire province. All right. So fingers crossed then things go well and we'll start to see students back in the class on Thursday. Absolutely. All right, Terry, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, talking about that kind of apprehension, as she said, that teachers are feeling today, understandably so, because it's, for a lot of them, it's going to be the first time that they get a good look at their classroom and what, what, how it's going to be set up, what the distancing looks like. In some cases, it will not be adequate for the number of students in the classroom. And then what do you do? As she said, they're still working on getting face shields for the teachers that want those. So there are going to be issues to deal with this week for sure. Would love to hear from you if you're dealing with one of these situations as well. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we're going to talk about a situation in Port Moody that is generating a lot of discussion, and it has to do with a sawmill that has been in operation in Port Moody for something like 100 years. Now that sawmill is closing down, and they're blaming the city of Port Moody for that. We're going to find out why that is. Joining us now is the mayor of Port Moody, Rob Vagermoff, to talk more about this. Thank you for being here. Hey, Sydney. Happy Labor Day. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the Flavel Mill here. They're saying that the city is charging them too much for property taxes, and that's why they're going to be putting 70 staff out of work. How do you respond to that? Well, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a little uh, little disappointing to, to listen to that uh, interview the other day there with uh, Mr. Uh, Bruce Rose there from the, from the mill. Uh, you know, I know they say that we're sort of in the post-truth era nowadays, but it was a little disappointing to see some of that corporate perspective uh, with, with no fact-checking there uh, on what, what was said. You know, there, the, the first off, everyone knows British Columbia assessment was done by BC assessment and uh, not by the city. Um, you know, the city has um, its, its uh, set of, of tax increases. In 2020, we actually had the lowest the tax increase in 21 years. Uh, and, uh, and over the last few years, we've seen um, taxation on the mill site that is completely consistent with all industrial players in the city, of which there are uh, a few of them. So they're saying, though, that they got put into a different category and that raised their uh, their property taxes. On the city side, the city is saying that they want to do something different with the land, which is what caused it. So what, what's going on here? 
Well, the, I don't think anybody from the city went there to say that they it's because of a land use change. You know, we had a we had a land use change that was passed by the the previous uh, city council administration, and um, this this basically enshrined into our official community plan the largest development, uh, or at least one of the largest developments in Port Moody history, one that could boost our population by about twenty percent. So you can imagine, we're just one one bill. Uh, you can imagine, you know, the, the effects of that. Uh, if you were to talk about uh, any other uh, larger city in, in in the Lower Mainland, but they were actually the, the mill was actually shielded from any of the taxes that come along with a massive upgrade in land use um, because of a, something called Bill 42 that was passed in the provincial legislature. Um, and so they were supposed to be taxed, um, you know, extremely harshly because we went from industrial to high density, ridiculously high density residential uh, as their highest and best use. But they got an exemption under Bill 42. So they were shielded uh, from almost all of that, actually all of that taxation. I'm, I'm told only a couple properties in D.C. qualify and they were one of them. Uh, Bruce did mention, though, that um, there was. Uh, he mentioned a um, pass, the, the city passed a bylaw and shifted some of that tax burden onto the industrial companies in Port Moody. Um, that was, you know, com- that, that statement, I think, um, I'd love to see where that bylaw was, but did mm-hmm. that. Um, Petro-Canada, we have, we have, a, we have a, a property there, Petro-Canada appealed their property assessment by, by BC assessment, which everyone is entitled to do. So the city collected an extra seven hundred fifty thousand bucks in two thousand nineteen, just in case that appeal was successful. We obviously wouldn't want to collect that from all residents, so we kept it within the industrial class. Uh, but the the appeal was dropped, and the mill right. received a refund, a complete total refund of every penny that was spent two hundred forty six thousand one hundred forty five dollars. Um, and I don't know if Mr. Mr. Rosemus uh, may have forgotten that or, or didn't, didn't mention it, but the company did receive an, an right. absolute refund for the 2019 bump that, again, was not a shift. It was just we were we were trying to be prudent there. But, but Mayor Vagamov, if that mill closes down, which is what they say they're doing now, what is going to happen to that property now? What is the potential? Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's the uh, that's a two billion dollar question right now. You know, Bruce made it clear that um, that they were supportive of a long term plan to get to a waterfront community, and I would assume a landowner would be supportive of their own vision to add you know thirty four hundred units of high value you know residential condos right on the waterfront. If you price those at six hundred k, which is a super low ball, that that is just over two billion dollars worth of real estate. So I'm not particularly surprised they were supportive of this. Um, that was passed um, last term um, by uh, the past city council administration, which was pretty, you know, heavily uh, in favor of of high density right uh, but- development. But you're, what you're saying is there is the potential, though, now with the mill closing down for this to become a big development. It kind of sounds like what you were trying to avoid in the first place. That's what I was trying to avoid. Yeah, I voted against that. I think it was a, a bit of a a bit of a monstrous uh, scale in terms of you know the development there, and um, that's you know that's something we're looking at with the official community plan. I, I noted that that uh, they were not in a don't don't seem to be in a rush there uh, to redevelop. You know, only time will tell if that's uh, if that's the right. case. But uh, we're we're reviewing our official community plan this year, 
And, um, you know, we, this would be a good time to look at this area with fresh eyes. Um, you know, personally, mm-hmm. I, would, I would personally want to see all that land be Rocky Point Park 2.0. You know, you stand there, you look, you look over to your left and right when you're at Rocky Point Park, and you imagine 10 or 20,000 people being brought into that area around the park. It, it really starts to feel really small. Right. Uh, even if it's crowded easily. But we'll see what, what the people of Port Moody have to say through our, through our engagement mm-hmm. process. All right. Thank you very much for your time on that. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. I want to give a shout out here to the Greater Vancouver Food Bank because they actually need some help this morning. So joining us now is the CEO of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, David Long, to tell us about that. Good morning, David. Good morning, Sammy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. What's going on? What do you need? Um, well, you know, we've uh, since COVID hit uh, in mid-March, we've kind of reinvented ourselves four or five times. Um, and we're looking for a temporary location in somewhere in Vancouver, um, we have been set up uh, at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre uh, and at Mount Pleasant Community Centre in the gymnasium there. Um, large spaces, social distancing to help us keep everybody safe during this. Um, and unfortunately, with things sort of starting to reopen, um, we are looking for a four to 6,000 square foot uh, space uh, that we can use in Vancouver to help us with distribution just for the next three months uh, until we get uh, a, a new location that we've leased uh, up and running and, and ready for for our clients. Okay, so you do have a new location. It's just not going to be ready for three months. That's correct. Okay, so what you're looking for is a temporary space. Uh, any other limitations, like areas that you need to be in or anything like that? Um, ideally, sort of, you know, the Strathcona area around there, Mount Pleasant, Fairview, um, we would, would be ideal for us to, to be as close as we can to our clients in, in those areas. Um, we would need to have a loading dock somewhere where we can, you know, with the volume of food that we do distribute, uh, we need to have a, some form of a loading dock right. or easy access uh, and also easy access for our clients as well. So how busy has it been at the food bank in the last six months or so, David? Um, it's, it's been busy. We uh, obviously with the, uh, the assistance of the, from the government and the CERB checks, things like that. Um, it, it has, we haven't seen a huge increase. We've certainly seen an increase in, in new clients coming. Um, but uh, you know, we expect things to get busier uh, as we move forward, as things start to open up again. Okay, so you are seeing kind of a steady but slow increase. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so where can people get in touch with you if they do have a place that they think might be suitable? Um, they, can, they can get in contact uh, uh, with myself, with our communications uh, uh, director, uh, Jody. Um, they can get onto our website and uh, through the main reception phone line and uh, leave a message and uh, we'll get back to them pretty quickly. And also, what have donations been like during this time? I know that you got a lot of help from kind of restaurants and cruise ships and that kind of thing. Has that kept up? Uh, yes, it has. The public, as always, uh, have been absolutely incredible uh, and being able, we're able to keep our doors open. Um, we're, you know, we're, we're very lucky with the food donations we have as well, uh, sort of industrial food donations. I always tell people the same thing. There's no, no shortage of food. There's just a distribution problem. All right, we'll see what we can do. David, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. Take well, care. Best of luck. That's David Long. He's the CEO of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. And as you heard, they have a crunch right now. They need to find a temporary distribution center just for three months. They have been working out of different buildings, like, but now that those buildings are coming back into their regular use, 
they need to find another place only for three months because they have another one lined up uh, for three months from now. But if you can help them out with a facility four to 6,000 square feet, he said, they do need a loading dock. Uh, if you can help them out with that, please get in touch with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank and uh, see if you can help them continue to do the good work that they always do.